Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Patrick Maley, who is the author of The Cards, The Evolution and Power of Tarot. Patrick, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about how this book came about, how you got interested in um, tarot and how you started to compile and put together this book? Sure. Uh, well, there are a couple of points to consider. My interest in tarot uh, stems from a broader interest in the history of magic. So when I was a graduate student at Texas Tech University working on my dissertation in history, I was looking at magic and miracle and how they were viewed differently uh, in the early Christian community. And uh, just, you know, an interest in magic kind of stemmed from there. I kept going. I teach a history of magic class here at Oklahoma Panhandle State University. But the book itself came out of a connection uh, that was developed for me through my uh, dean. And um, he, Brad Duran, has a, a good connection to the Southwest Popular Culture Conference in Albuquerque. It's just a, it's a fantastic conference every year on all things pop culture. And you know, I teach European history, uh, but this is about American popular culture. And I, I wanted to present, if I'm going to the conference, I want to present a paper. And I struggled with the idea of what I could do at that conference. And I settled upon the idea of tarot cards and connected them to uh, television. And so I, I really enjoyed doing that paper. And I, as luck would have it, I got contacted by Katie Keene of the University of Mississippi Press. And she asked me if that was part of a larger project. Uh, and it wasn't, but I thought, if you want it to be, it will be. <laughs> and so we started talking about a book and uh, that particular publisher has an interest in television, movies, and comics. And I thought, well, I can connect tarot to all three of those things. It'll work great for both of us. And so it just went from there. And, and so in the book, you sort of start, you've divided it into sort of two parts. Um, and the first is a bit of this history of tarot. And, and the first section in the first chapter is on that, the origin, origins of the tarot card. So can you talk a bit about those origins and how they came to be? Um, it seems in, in reading this and thinking about it, there is often misperception about tarot and how it came to be. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Great. So one of the things that struck me the most is that the cards didn't originate as a magical device. There was no association with fortune telling. Uh, it was a game. And uh, cards as, you know, playing cards, the ones that we're familiar with for playing poker and stuff like that, uh, these came from the Islamic world into the Christian world by way of Italy. And so during the Renaissance, uh, cards were introduced and uh, the Italians 
came up with their own uh, card game, and it was Taroki, which is where we get our word tarot. But it was, as I say, just a game. And it was uh, not until the 1700s, the so-called Age of Enlightenment, which is one of, you know, really cool periods in history. But it was in the 1700s that around the time of the American Revolution, uh, there was this um, Frenchman by the name of Antoine Cor de Gabelline. And he was an intellectual and he was uh, in Paris and he happened to encounter these women from southern France playing this game, Terra. And he was intrigued with the pictures on the cards. And they had always, going back to the Renaissance, they'd always had some really interesting pictures on the uh, what we call the major arcana cards. And uh, those pictures include like uh, a woman holding the mouth of a lion open, representing strength, right? There's a card of the devil. uh, There's one of the sun and just a whole bunch of different cards that um, he was intrigued with. And Corte Gebeline, like a lot of people in his time and his social milieu, had a bit of an interest in magic as a uh, a sort of a philosophical construct. Um, And he felt that those images were actually far more significant than these common people playing the card game could possibly realize. And he theorized without much foundation at all that these cards were actually a book, that individual cards were like pages in a book and they contained hidden information that only brilliant people like he could see. Uh, And that, um, they were hidden in society by turning them into a game so that far into the future, uh, people would be able to figure it out if they were the right kind of people. And he wrote about this in a uh, book called The Primeval World. He, he just had a little bit in that book, uh, but he, he wrote about that and uh, it sort of went from there. Uh, into a into becoming a magical device. But if you look at Renaissance um, figures that are associated with magic, they never talk about cardomancy at all. So it, it clearly was not a thing in the Renaissance, as far as I can tell. Now, there are certain people that would disagree with me on that, and they would offer some evidence to suggest maybe magic and cards do go back to the Renaissance, but there's nothing really solid there. And then once you get into the early 1800s, it really takes off from there. People, once they have it in mind that the cards do have these magical connotations, they begin to kind of insert it into the cards and graft it on there. And it really worked well. You know, I mean, the idea of uh, strength, for example, being meaningful, that's obvious, right? And if you want to apply that to, say, fortune telling, uh, why wouldn't it work? Uh, To me, it seems as if cards have some, the cards have something in common with uh, a lot of other big things, big ideas and institutions in society where they can mean what people want them to mean. They can be adapted into different kinds of circumstances or concepts. And uh, you have a lot of syncretistic elements with the cards, just as you do with like religion, you know, Uh, just as in Christianity, we could take this really pagan idea of uh, Easter eggs or Christmas trees. And it works great for uh, the faith as an institution or as a cultural thing. Uh, Similarly, with the cards, magic uh, seemed to breathe a tremendous amount of life, uh, even a change of identity into what had just been a simple game. And it's, it's really interesting. You talk about that and, and throughout the, in that the earlier chapters and that sort of first part about this history and the evolution, you talk a bit about those ways that people have um, used the card for different purposes. I, you know, I think that 
often there's there's this idea of and you talk about this that sort of mystic that practices tarot you know in the tent kind of thing um, but then there's the reality of it with the the people who practice tarot and so you talk a bit about that idea of um, all those different ways um, like in psychology in you know in different and so I'd love I mean, just because you brought you started there I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how um, who those people are, we're sort of jumping ahead in chapter, but I thought okay, who those people are that um, sort of practice and use tarot and, and, and what you found there. Well, psychology is a great place to look for that. I'm, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary scholarship. <clears throat> and uh, so looking at psychology as it relates to tarot is really good. You know, there's a, back in the 1940s, there was a, a psychologist named Bertram Forer and Ford developed something that came to be called the Four um, uh, Effect, which is basically uh, if you tell people things that are sort of generalized, but more positive than negative, uh, and you're just describing like personality traits, people will latch on to that in a way that feels personally identifying. So there's a common experiment that's been done where you could get, say, a classroom full of students and give them uh, or ask them their uh, birthday and year and then have uh, someone posing as an astrologer write up a brief summary of their personality traits, bring it back next week and hand it to these individuals and most of them, maybe even all of them will say, yeah, that really does describe me. And then they'll ask to hand the paper to the student behind them or beside them or whatever. And it turns out everybody's got the same thing. So there is something about us and how our, I'll say a normal person's mind, um, whatever normal may mean, but a normal person's mind is going to find things um, that feel uh, very individualized, very personalized, but they're actually general uh, and applicable to other people. And so uh, psychologists found that out in, in the 40s. And then um, there are things like uh, the Rorschach test, which most people are familiar with that, where you look at a picture and it means something to you. It's not necessarily that you have to guess a correct interpretation. It just triggers uh, a thought. And whatever thoughts are triggered, whatever we want to talk about in regular conversations, they're always going to reflect something about us, aren't they? I mean, whatever we choose to discuss, whether we're angry about something or happy or bragging or lamenting, um, whatever comes out uh, is a revelation to some minor degree about who we are and, and what we're about. And so you can do that with the cards just as you can do it with another uh, psychological tool called the thematic apperception test. The the thematic apperception test basically uh, has pictures, a series of pictures that uh, are sort of maybe mundane circumstances or very ambiguous images. Uh, They can include people, they could include, uh, you know, a room or something like that. And, the individual is asked to arrange the pictures in a sequence and then tell a story. And in doing so, they're going to reveal something about their, their mindset, right? But think about that next to tarot cards, which are just pictures arranged in a sequence that tell a story and give us something to think about that can then in turn tell us something about how we think. Uh, So psychologists have been able to use tarot cards. There's an interesting one by the name of Arthur Rosengarten, uh, who practices in California. And he has used tarot cards uh, for, you know, clients that have an interest in that um, or a willingness and openness to do it uh, just to get people thinking. And uh, he's done work with uh, people who, are facing terminal illnesses. He's done some interesting uh, group dynamics. I talk in the book about how uh, he engaged this group of uh, women that had an internal conflict 
in their therapy group where there were some women who wanted it to be about moving beyond whatever trauma had brought them together and then, you know, establishing a new life with themselves as friends uh, with a common background, but they, they didn't really like talking about it. And then there was another group or another sub section within the group that felt that's the opposite of what they need, that what they needed was more discussion of the thing that the bond that they had. And it wasn't, you know, this group had been together for a significant amount of time before Rosengarten got involved. But in his tarot readings, what came out was that you have this division within the group about how they see the purpose of that group. And once that was out, the ability to resolve that problem uh, became available and they could move forward. It's right. Like, and I think it's really interesting how you have found these different ways in which tarot is used. I love that, you know, what you said about the pictures telling the story, right? And the importance of the story. And one of the things that I think in, and you bring it up often, and the evolution of tarot is that there's um, certain decks that are now become, made tarot really important. And I appreciate that you call it the, um, White Coleman Smith deck um, instead of the Rider White deck, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that deck um, and and sort of what brought tarot into the 1920th centuries, right? What it brought it into our sort of modern era. Yeah, so the deck that we're talking about is kind of the deck. You know, uh, there are probably well over a thousand different tarot decks available. Uh, right now, but everybody knows the this one, and everyone that's into tarot knows this one. It's usually the most familiar to people. Uh, I'm sure it's the the top selling deck and everything. But um, two members of the Golden Dawn, which was this you know secret organization uh, associated with magic in uh, 1890s, early 1900s in England. Uh, Arthur Edward Waite and Pamela Coleman-Smith decided they were going to uh, make a deck that used one of these Italian Renaissance-era decks called the Sola Busca deck uh, for the what we call a minor arcana. So maybe I should explain first. A tarot deck is sort of two decks in one, in a sense. There are 78 total cards but you have the the major arcana, 20-some-odd cards that have names like um, the devil, the tower, uh, the moon, and so on. But then you have suit cards, which are um, just like the more familiar ones. Of, uh, instead of hearts and spades and clubs and diamonds, it's uh, coins or pentacles, um, uh, wands and uh, cups. And so you've got, uh, you know, ace through 10. And then instead of Jack, queen, king, it is um, page, knight, queen, king. Uh, and so that's how the decks are composed. Now, what what uh, Waite and Smith decided to do after looking at the Sola Busca deck, they decided that the minor arcana, those suit cards, should have imagery on them that's, uh, you know, symbolic and strong. And in, in, instead of just the, say, three coins on the three of coins, right? Instead of a picture of just three coins, they're going to put something else there. And in doing that, it made not only a more beautiful deck, but it also made it easier to consider the meaning of uh, an individual card in the in the minor arcana. and it ended up becoming uh, a, a bestseller uh, such that by the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, it was showing up really everywhere at, within the context of the New Age movement at that time, but also, uh, you know, beyond that, right? And so uh, there was a woman by the name of Eden Gray Uh, And in the early 1970s, Eden Gray wrote a book on tarot cards that became uh, 
an important uh, book in the history of uh, of these kind of this genre, if I can call it that, because it was really clear as an instruction manual, and it was illustrated with the Wait Coleman Smith deck, and I think that just boosted the popularity of the deck even more uh, as Eden Gray's book became uh, well known. But I, yeah, I call it the Wake Coleman Smith deck. It's more formally or traditionally known as the Rider Wait deck. And Rider is the name of the publisher. And Wait was, uh, you know, the guy that he's credited with designing the concepts of the cards. Uh, but not the actual illustrations. Pamela Coleman Smith, I think for many generations, was sort of undercredited uh, for her role in this. It's, she had a much more significant role than what she either got paid for or got credit for. And in recent years, uh, tarotists like Mary Kay Greer, who's a pretty prominent person in, in that field, uh, have done a lot of work to, uh, I'll say, rehabilitate Pamela Coleman Smith's uh, reputation. And I, so I'm following suit uh, with her. I'm, uh, I'm definitely a big believer that the woman deserves credit uh, because she did a heck of a thing. I mean, it's a really uh, nice deck. The art is simplistic, but it is um, also strong and uh, it's easier to use, uh, but it's also the kind of thing that allows a tarot reader to do much more than just memorize this card means this thing. You do get certain feelings evoked from the images on, on those cards. And uh, she had a masterful way artistically to uh, balance out whatever universal meaning should be in an image with whatever personal impact that image could have for, for a reader. And I know this isn't, um, you don't really get, go into this in your book because it's, um, but I'm really interested as you're talking about that relationship between the person who sort of creates the concept and the artist, right? And there always seems to be, um, or there often seems to be two people in the, you know, one doing the art and one doing the creation. And I'm not sure if there's anything um, with that that you have seen or want to sort of talk about a little. You know, you could apply that to the uh, a deck called the Thoth deck uh, that Alistair Crowley did with Lady Frida Harris. And um, Frida Harris, again, uh, as is the case with Pamela Coleman Smith, has gotten more credit as time went on than she did initially for, for the artwork. And uh, I guess... Uh, Crowley's the idea guy and, and you know but I I'm sure that does happen quite a bit um, sometimes a person can have a great idea and just not be able to execute it visually so you would want to go to an artist but there are a lot of occasions where an individual especially if they have been in tarot for a little while and they've got fallen in, in love with it and they want to make their own deck if they've got an art skill. My, so my son, for example, this is not in the book, but my son very recently came out with a uh, deck of his own. It's called the Ink Witch Tarot. And uh, he started off just on social media. There was a, a what is it, an Inktober where uh, an art, artist would do a couple of pictures every day for a whole month. And he decided he's going to focus on some ideas for tarot. And after he did that, he decided he's going to make a whole deck. Uh, and it's really something how the people who do these decks, um, I can imagine that what happens to almost all of them is that certain ideas are almost, you know, too easy. And then as you get into your 10th, 15th, 20th, 30th card, at some point, if you would say, I just don't know what to do for this one, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to have, say, comic characters in a tarot deck and you wanted them to be Marvel comic characters, maybe it's easy to say Dr. Strange should be the uh, magician card. Um, but then 
you don't know who you'd want for maybe your uh, three of swords or, <laughs> or something like that. So it's an incredible uh, mental exercise. And I think the same would have been true for those early Renaissance artists who uh, were making these tarot decks. Uh, of course, for them, each deck is done, you know, by hand. And nowadays it's, you know, we have such an ability to produce on scale that that is a very different thing in that way. But I think that mentally and artistically, uh, the, the process of coming up with a new deck has changed very little. Mm-hmm. And, and so these, we have these decks, right? Um, people are using them. And then we, they come to America, right? You sort of talk about how we get them here in the U.S. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that, um, how the decks get to America and, and how they sort of get marketed in the United States? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a little bit difficult for me to explain, but I'll, um, I'll try it like this. I think that when uh, Waite and Coleman Smith came out with their deck, it was around the same time that uh, Aleister Crowley had sort of blown up the Golden Dawn, which you know, prided itself on secrecy and a sort of elitism. And uh, so much was exposed to the public that it sort of uh, reshuffled the deck, so to speak. <laughs> and um, uh, they had this wider exposure. And so that deck finds its way uh, to America. And by that time, you know, America had its own secret societies too in the uh, late 1800s. Um, not as prevalent as they would have been in France or in England. Uh, But America, culturally speaking, didn't really embrace the idea of magic as an elitist thing in the way that the British did. So you had popularizers of magic, uh, people like uh, Paul Foster Case or C.C. Zane, who kind of put... um, various forms of uh, personalized kind of magic as meditation or magic at, you know, the ability to, to see into the future or gain some spiritual recognition or in some cases, sexual magic too. Uh, but once the culture of the United States was able to engage with these tarot cards, it took on a bit of a different meaning. And the fact that they were from Europe gave them a a sort of an exotic feel as well. So they were attractive in that way, too. Um, And then by the time you get into the late 1960s, early 1970s, and you have this New Age movement, which was embracing uh, just a diverse range of um, uh, interests in whether it was... uh, Buddhism or Taoism from Asia, or whether it was beliefs about ancient Egyptians and Native Americans and, uh, you know, the age of Aquarius and with uh, astrological uh, interest being piqued, tarot fit in so well with that. Uh, and at that point, uh, the Wake Coleman Smith deck had, had a solid niche and was ready to be turned into something enormous, as I said, with, with the work of Eden Gray. And you taught, you mentioned this multiple times, but it, and I think when anyone who's even seen a tarot deck knows that tarot is, there's just art, the deck is art itself, right? And so in that second sort of part of the book, you, you start to, you know, you give us this history and then move into some of the ways we see this in popular culture. Um, and so I'd love for you to talk a bit more about that art, like how tarot is art and how it's used. You talk about the Salvador Dali's deck and, and different sort of decks, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that role of art in tarot. Thank you. Yeah, that was an important chapter for me, and it was challenging uh, for me to research that one, uh, not so much in terms of finding material, but in terms of coming up with a context because art to begin with is one of these terms like beauty or goodness where it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to me as it does to you. Uh, And yet 
we use those words with each other as if there's no problem uh, communicating an equal understanding. And it's not really like that. So one of the things that I would point out is that people often think of art as uh, having these two levels, like there's low art and high art, if you will. And uh, if somebody was to make a tarot deck with gummy bears on it, um, I don't know that we can call that art, right? But on the other hand, we have people, uh, for example, there's a deck that uses Edward Blake's art and uh, no one's going to make a, an honest claim that Blake wasn't a great artist. So to put his art on the deck must mean that that deck has great art. I just don't see a way of arguing against that. You could also see, as you meant, like Salvador Dali made a deck uh, for his wife. And Salvador Dali uh, is recognized as a great artist, although some people don't like him, of course. You know, it's subjective stuff. But, but if a prominent artist makes a deck, then how could you say it isn't? You know, if we look at the Thoth deck that I mentioned earlier, and you can see, for example, Picasso's Cubism shows up in certain cards in that deck that Alistair Crowley and Lady Frida Harris made. Uh, the Tower card is very much a Cubist rendering. Uh, I talk about Picasso's Guernica painting and how the eye in that is incorporated into Crowley's Tower card. Um, <clears throat> the work of uh, Pamela Coleman-Smith fits into uh, artistic movements of her time period uh, that have had a, a lasting effect. And so, uh, you know, in, in the Renaissance era, when cards were first being made, uh, they were handcrafted by artists. And in at least one case, there was an artist that made plates so that others could be made from the same device. But uh, I think that there's some powerful imagery uh, particularly religious imagery that shows up in the art and tarot, uh, and tarot cards. So, for example, the Book of Kells, the um, early medieval Irish gospel, uh, has these images of the four evangel evangelists, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, symbolized by um, an angel, an ox, a lion, and... Uh, an eagle. And in some of the tarot cards, uh, there's a couple of, of the tarot cards where you see those very images placed in the corners of the car. So they're incorporating uh, very uh, sincerely religious um, artistic imagery. And uh, I, I think that that suggests to us that as a medium, it's, it's, very conducive to, you know, to distributing art out into the, the wider culture. But then again, some people might say that if you mass produce it, it's not art. Uh, and I don't try to tackle that debate. Uh, I think that, you know, I mean, in my office, I have uh, a print of Caravaggio's um, uh, Doubting Thomas uh, hanging on the wall and a picture of David's uh, Death of Socrates hanging on my office wall. And it's just pictures that were copied, you know. Uh, it's obviously not the, the original, although sometimes I will tell my students I stole the original, and here it is. I take it from a museum, don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's not. And so is it still art, right? I, I would argue that it is. But I would also add to that that if you disagree with me, that's fine. But there's plenty of room to disagree because art is a very personal and subjective thing. It matters to people. It evokes uh, feelings. It provokes discussion and um, debate. It gets us thinking and it gets us feeling. And that's really what art is supposed to do. Uh, so at, at that level... Uh, one should look at tarot as genuine art. There's also the possibility of taking tarot and incorporating it into something that is artistic. So if an artist is painting um, a, 
a, a scene in a room where there is a tarot reader or a deck of cards. And tarot is now in the art. Tarot is literally the art. So we can look at it and approach it from any number of ways. And I try to be mindful of that in that chapter while also showing, um, you know, several different kinds of decks and, and uh, the stories behind those. And, and I, I really appreciated that chapter and what you're saying, partly because of right that idea that I do think, I think there's beautiful, right? People buy decks for the imagery on them. But my favorite deck right now is one where I actually have prints, right? From the artist um, that she's made that uh, represent the deck, right? So she's taken the art in her tarot, but also made prints, right? So I think, and, and they're hanging on my wall, right? Those, that's art. Yeah. Um, so I really um, appreciate that, like thinking about art and thinking about how tarot is art in those ways. And, and that, I mean, you talk about the British Museum having um, prints of one deck, right? The deck. And so the importance of that historically, right? You can go to a museum and find these, you can find tarot and you can find these prints in the museums as well. So that high art versus yeah. low art. Even. Um, right. So you, so you sort of set this up and then you move into really thinking about tarot and television and then film and comics. So let's start with television because that's sort of where you start and a bit about how you've seen tarot, um, tarot's place in television. I think it's got some, it's got a handful of good functions for storytelling in general, whether that's television, comics, or movies. Um, if a lot of people uh, have a sense of, let's say, fear or uh, hostility, or um, sort of anguish over tarot cards, then you can use that by using tarot cards as a prop. Uh, and, you know, we see that happening over and over. You can also sort of connect a card to a character. And, uh, you know, so if you have the fool card, for example, uh, and you want a character to seem foolish, uh, well, obviously, you know, the link is made instantly, right? But I um, think they're also really good for foreshadowing. Uh, you know, if they're associated, there's association with fortune telling and tarot cards. So if you have somebody's fortune being read, uh, then you right there, you're creating, you know, a story and an ending. Uh, you just have the characters play it out. It's also it's something to me to see how many different kinds of shows used tarot. Um, you'd expect it in a show, uh, in, in certain shows, like, um, I'm trying to think of... Uh, well, like Buffy, I think you said, like, you'd expect it in something like oh, Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer, right? <laughs> right, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, thank you, yeah. and um, But you wouldn't really expect it in Andy Griffith, would you? Right, no, I and mean, that was so funny, yeah. I must have seen, I remember, I used to love watching Andy Griffith a long time, and I was like, I must have seen it, but I just, yes, it was one of those, oh. Yeah, and, and that was 1964, so it's really before the, the New Age movement, uh, and it shows you that at the cultural level, um, tarot had a place in television. Uh, as far as I know, the first place that it shows up was on an old Western series, um, and I think it's called the Lawman, uh, and they use the the Hangman card to you know create a sense of da da you know something bad's gonna happen, um, but uh, and it shows up in animated uh, series too. The Simpsons used it, and uh, King of the Hill, which was I used to just love King of yeah. the Hill. It was one of my favorite shows, and I, so I remember when the character Bobby got into tarot card reading. Um, and, you know, I th thought that was, was cute and funny. Uh, and, you know, part of this is, is odd to me because tarot's place in culture, broadly speaking, is very limited, right? Like there's a certain group of people in society that you might expect to be associating with tarot, but not us decent, normal folk, right? And, 
And so for the rest of people, uh, they can have these preconceived notions of, about tarot and you can use those uh, and, and can be very entertaining. You can use those to criticize people who criticize tarot or you can use those to criticize tarot. Whatever you want to do, it works. Um, and I, I think that that, uh, that range is a very useful thing because while it's, um, you know, very flexible in this way, it's also very strong in that the reactions people have to it, like if somebody's opposed to tarot and they want to see tarot getting dragged through the mud in a television show, it would be very gratifying for them. On the other hand, if somebody is very into tarot and they see it being used and used well on a show, um, that too would be very gratifying. So on the one hand, it's neutral, right? Like you can do whatever you want with it. On the other hand, people have strong feelings about it one way or the other. And so it's able to provide a a sort of a a powerful sense of uh, emotion or attitude when it does get deployed in a, in a television program. I thought you had this one, um, you were talking about the use in Man Men, right? And I thought that was really interesting because the um, show producers, right, and creator uses tarot, right? Talks about his use of tarot. And and actually, um, you have a one shot of um, a reading for Don Draper that was actually the reading that the creator had gotten, right? Um, so yeah. I think that's really yeah. interesting, too. Um, that, you know, when you talk about like bringing tarot in and how it's used. Yeah. So the show's creator is able to incorporate experiences from his own life and then apply them to Don Draper as as a uh, the main character in the series and do it in a way that really worked well um, in, in that reading. We do get this encapsulated moment where our understanding of the main character's uh, attitude towards relationships is kind of revealed. And so the viewer already knows a lot about Don Draper at that point, And that reading kind of tells you a bit about him as a person. Uh, but it goes beyond that and suggests a direction that his life is moving in. And uh, that's what a tarot reading offers typically. Uh, but when we apply it to a, uh, a specific character, it helps to develop that character and to develop the, um, the story arc uh, that it's being inserted into as well. And it's interesting when you, you know, film and television are two, you know, two birds of the same feather you know, or completely opposite depending on who you talk to. But it was interesting um, it, it, it saw it a little bit in your television chapter, but in your movie chapter, even more so, um, how tarot is used as a, how tarot is altered, right? Like, or the traditional ways that tarot is altered in order to fit the purposes of the narrative. Like I'm thinking of the James Bond um, and using the tarot and sort of creating like all, like the 78 lover cards, right? So you flip the deck and you're going to get the card <laughs> yeah. you want, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you saw the ways in which tarot has been altered or used in that way to um, change the narrative. Yeah, I think the uh, James Bond movie with, uh, I'm trying to remember the actress's name. Was it Jane uh, Seymour? Was she the one in that one? Yeah, yes. Jane okay. Seymour, uh, beautiful young lady, uh, is paired up with uh, James Bond, who Roger Moore was well into his 40s at that point. So I think that, that's a little bit, a little bit creepy to me. But um, I'm still a James Bond fan, nonetheless. And uh, he, uh, I thought it was amusing that he is able to manipulate the tarot reader. Um, because James Bond, you know, he, he knows how to do things and he's so smart and everything like that. So he uses her, um, uh, device against her. We see something similar in, um, a Sherlock Holmes game of shadows movie 
where Robert Downey Jr. plays Sherlock Holmes, and there's a character in there, Madam Simza, who uh, reads tarot, and Holmes goes in to get his uh, fortune read, and he he wants to really upstage her and um, takes the deck from her and starts reading hers. And of course, he already knows something about her, and he's going to use that and use the cards in combination with that to kind of assert himself. Um, but in the case of Madame Simza, unlike with Jane Seymour's character, she's a much stronger uh, woman. And uh, she has this mental toughness that uh, makes her more than just a match for him. And it comes out in that scene using those cards. And uh, even the cards themselves, the art on the cards has some um, historical uh, connection to a, a deck that would have been in existence at the time of uh, that the movie is set in. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting too. It wasn't exactly that deck, but you could tell the artwork was inspired by that. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're sort of using the cards to shape, to tell us something about the characters and about the relationships between the characters in a way that's highly effective. I mean, you could do that in other ways. Characters always have to be built. Relationships always have to be built within the context of a movie. But um, the tarot deck and individual tarot cards or a tarot reading, all of these things can be used very well to perform that function in in a movie. There's one movie that that if you don't mind me talking about, that might not be well known uh, to most people because it's 1947 is when it came out. But uh, Nightmare Alley, uh, which is a a film noir, um, it involves a whole series of different kinds of uh, magic, uh, uh, magical things that are all scams and cons. Uh, But within that, movie the one sort of supernatural thing that isn't a fake is the tarot cards and i I believe that's the only movie that does a thing like that that at least that i'm familiar with where uh, you know magic is associated with uh not just stage magicians but with con men in 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 a, a, a a number of different ways and then yet this one uh very stereotypical uh, magical device, the deck of tarot cards, is put into a a very different kind of context. And um, I thought that was a really interesting uh, movie and an interesting way of of using the tarot. Yeah, I think you um, have given me some, like the Red Violin you talk about too, like some movies to um, my summer watch. (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah, Red Red Violin's impressive. And I saw, you know, I saw the Red Violin, but it was probably, it was like 20 years ago, right? Or yeah, probably, right? 20 years ago or so. I'm forgetting we're in 2021, right? Like, and so I'm like, you know, going back to that film and if I can find Nightmare Alley, I'm sure I can, right? But, you know, I'm like, I want to watch these again and sort of look for that and see how that sort of plays out um, in those different roles. Um, and then you sort yeah, of- I can- Oh, go, ahead. go no go ahead uh, well I was just going to say in Red Violin uh, that that movie had been out for a while before I ever heard of it and I, I came across it while researching uh, this book and so watched it for that purpose and I was really impressed uh, you know they they use tarot in ways that you'd expect so it can foreshadow things right but they're telling multiple stories simultaneously in there and they're doing it in a way that didn't leave me confused, which I really appreciated that, you know, I'm not a big fan of like flashbacks, flash forward, flashback again, go to the present. You know, that I just, uh, I get frustrated with that sort of thing, but this movie takes us through time, uh, uh, you know, from, I want to say, I think it's uh, 1600s Italy up to present day when, when it came out. Uh, and uh, it follows this violin uh, that um, has a, 
uh, a connection to uh, a woman that dies uh, at the beginning of the story. Uh, but the tarot cards are seemingly at one level telling the story of the woman who died and at another level telling the story of that violin. And the reader is, I mean, the viewer is then sort of immersed in the tarot card reading, but at the same time traveling through time and all the stories connected to that violin are interesting stories too. Uh, And so we follow really uh, simultaneous or, you know, at one and the same time, we're getting like three stories told to us uh, in, in a way that's not hard to follow, but has this rich complexity to it uh, that is very engaging to me. Well, yes, I I remember watching that film and loving that how the story was woven, but the tarot was right now. I want to go back to it and watch for that. Um, so that's on my list. Uh, your final right. sort of chapter is about comics, right? And this, this sort of returns to art. I mean, I find comics to be art, um, but I, I'd love for you to talk about um, sort of what you found with tarot, both in more popular like Marvel DC, you know, comics, but also with what Neil Gaiman was doing um, and that and the work of um, Rachel Pollock is um as a terrorist and as a comic writer. Yeah. And Neil Gaiman and Rachel Pollock, it turns out they are well acquainted. Uh, and, and so they have worked together in different ways, uh, which I thought was really fascinating. I would not have imagined those two having a connection, but I thought that was really cool. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Rachel Pollock. I had an opportunity to interview her and Mary Greer uh, during the course of making this book. And uh, Mary Greer was kind enough to give me a blurb on the back of, of uh, the book cover. But uh, Rachel Pollock's 78 Degrees of Wisdom is one of these really important books in uh, the, the body of tarot literature. But her... Um, her work in comics um, gave her a chance to make connections with uh, certain kinds of readers that I think are numerically not significant in terms of sales or uh, audience size, but uh, I I think emotionally and personally significant. Rachel Pollack, you you may know, is uh, trans. And one of her characters uh, in the, she wrote a, um, a good sequence of a, a comic that um, had a trans character in it. And so it gave her an opportunity in the 1990s at a time where this was a difficult topic for society to, to digest for whatever reasons. And um, uh, she told me that she had gotten mail from uh, a young reader that felt uh, some sense of connection and comfort by, you know, being able to read that comic. And I, I think traditionally comics have actually provided that. You could look at a character like Captain America who starts off, I'm very well-known superhero, right? But he starts off as a real weak guy who can't fight, wishes he could be something more, and he miraculously gets that opportunity and it brings out the best of of this person and so how many how many little boys reading comics you know can live vicariously through that um it's comics are important in that way it might be simple i could see people ridiculing that notion but tough crap for them it you know the fact of the matter is it matters to people uh at, at certain levels and uh, so Rachel Pollock was able to to do something important in in that way, even if the rest of the world doesn't notice it much. <laughs> uh, that's the problem with the rest of the world. Uh, but then you've got, I mean, Neil Gaiman, enormously successful writer, enormously influential, uh, and um, he decided to uh, write a uh, series of comics that have a character that looks disturbingly like um, 
J.K. Rowling. Yeah, Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but this is before Harry Potter. Uh, this is before <laughs> Harry Potter. And he incorporates all kinds of the DC uh, characters into, uh, or I guess maybe I should say Vertigo, which is a subset of DC. Uh, they're incorporated into his series, and um, it's done it's done extremely well. I mean, if you like Neil Gaiman, you're going to like that. Uh, and um, I what what got me about it was the way that uh, he uses tarot to tell a story in in a context that. Uh, I don't, I don't want to give something away on it, but I'll, I'll say it like this. All of our lives fit into something bigger and more longer lasting, right? It comes, all of our lives are um, started at a point where so much has already gone on and will come to an end at a point where so much more is yet to come. And he found a way to, to do, to present that to the reader and, and incorporate tarot into the process, which I, I thought was interesting. Like a lot of stories, time travel is part of that too. Um, and so is this quest, or not so much a quest as a, a decision uh, that's made in life where the main character has to decide where do you stand? Uh, what kind of person are you going to be? You have all this potential in your life. What are you going to do with it? And, you know, that's always a great uh uh, device or an element to incorporate into a, a novel or a comic or whatever it may be. And uh, it's done while well, you, you know, it's done in a way that incorporates tarot. Uh, I think a lot of times when people look at tarot, uh, they see the, the fortune telling aspect of it. Um, and uh, it's supposed to be decisive, right? Like you will die at four thirty on uh you know tuesday march 18th and whatever year right um, and of course it's not that way it can't be that way but this isn't to it, unless you want it to be something to discredit tarot go, go ahead but i think that what what tarot readers uh generally do is to suggest potential trends or ongoing circumstances that that one can expect to face and then put the the querent, the person asking the questions, into uh, a frame of mind that is ready to address that. You know, should I face this circumstance, I will decide to do it in this way. It's not that you will face this circumstance at the specific time and in a specific place and way. It's more like think about think about this in your life and. You know, the imagery on the cards uh, is really derived from circumstances in all of our lives. Uh, the idea, like I mentioned, I've mentioned the strength card more than once at this point, but, but there are certain circumstances where we need strength. And we define that in all kinds of ways. It's not necessarily physical toughness, of course. It's maybe the ability to uh, stand up to a bully or the willingness to not follow along with your group when they're making a bad decision, or maybe it's just uh, you know facing the the death of a loved one and and somehow figuring a way to to move on from that. Uh, so if that card comes up, it will come up in a meaningful way. That's just all there is to it. Um, they are meaningful because of what's on the card. And if you are a normal person, again, whatever that means, I, I don't really know, but, but whatever a normal person is, when they are presented with an image that is significant, meaningful, and relevant, then they now have something important to ponder. Uh, and in that way, I, I think the cards were, were used well by Neil Gaiman, Rachel Pollock, uh, people who make comics or movies or TV shows uh, because the cards work well for that sort of thing. I have, I'm, I have to say, I'm so glad that you sort of said that and wrapped that up because when I will read the tarot, I'll say, you need to tell me your question and think about that question. And then I'm going to look at the cards and give you, I 
talk about them in relation to that so that you can think about like what is right like that <laughs> that wraps it up so well <laughs> that idea um i think for me um we've been talking a while so i i usually ask um if there's something you're working on now i mean i think this just came out so it might you know you might not be or um if there's something with your book that you sort of you know one last kind of anything you want to promote or out there or share? Oh, wow. Um, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. So I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah, not you, you might not. I, I always used to. <laughs> I, I have to say I'm not, um, I haven't started another project. I have a handful of ideas uh, bouncing around in my head about what to do next. Uh, and I'll have to narrow that down to one at some point. I'm just, I'm really not sure. I guess I, you know, I'm enjoying the fact that I am done with this and it's behind me now <laughs> uh, because, well, I mean, it was a labor of love, but it was a lot of labor. Uh, it's the first time I uh, had a book published. So it was a um, kind of a taxing process, but in many ways, an enjoyable one. I'm really glad that it came out. And um, I, I do have like a bit of sense of accomplishment. It's, it's sort of like a trophy when somebody writes a book uh, it's sort of like uh, getting a trophy, um, but then it's done and over with, and you have to go on to the next thing. So, I'm not quite sure uh, what what that will be yet. It might not even be uh, within the realm of uh, magic or popular culture. I just don't know. Yeah. That's fine. Well, this it's been great talking to you, Patrick. Um, this is again. It was Patrick Bailey, author of the cards, the evolution and power of tarot. Um, and this is New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks again. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I enjoyed it myself. It was fun talking to you. <laughs>